What's up, everyone? Uh, I'm hoping that you missed me. I've been gone for two weeks, but I'm back. I'm back, ready to do the show with Nando and Ben Burgess, who's joining us later for our interview segment. I missed you dearly, and I had to, like, you know, handle all the hosty bits, you know, and, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. and you know, lead the opening segment and all that stuff. And I was just, like, crumbling under the pressure. I'm like, usually Anna does all the heavy lifting around here, and I just got to yap away and deliver my hot takes. And it's... Uh, you know, it's hard to be the main the main host. Yeah, you know, I, I'm I'm really like I'm humbled when people say that to me because obviously I was also away from TYT for the week, and uh, I love it when I come back and people are like, "Oh, thank God, I don't want to keep doing this." I'm like, "Yes," you know, because I think sometimes people un- like they think it's easy, like they underestimate um, doing on air stuff, but no, you got to figure out when to like move a conversation along and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I missed you and I missed the show. Uh, I got to say, per, like doing this show on a regular basis uh, forces me to learn things that I think I otherwise like wouldn't have the time mm. to like explore. And that's what prepared me for the debate with Ben Shapiro um, in terms of like the parts of the debate that I think were relevant and important. So we're going to talk about that later with Ben because he's the king of logic. Uh, he knows how to give people an argument. And uh, we also have some awesome uh, decodes prepared, including uh, the interruption to the supply chain. What's really at foot? Uh, Nando's going to give us the details on that. And then I'll talk about the other half of the labor shortage that I don't think gets discussed enough, and that's the lack of childcare. You've touched on that in the past, Nando, but I wanted to talk about how the market specifically failed the childcare system. Yeah. No, I'm very excited for your decode. Um, you know, I'm a, uh, a recent uncle for the first time. Uh, and, uh, you know, my sister is just gave birth to a lovely, beautiful baby boy. And, uh, you know, the issues of childcare are now top of mind, as they say. Um, mm-hmm. You know, something that I just n- never previously had to deal with on a personal level. Um, that now, so very interested to hear what you have to say about that. All right. Well, before we get to all of that, why don't we uh, talk a little bit about some interesting labor activity that's taking place in the country? Uh, In fact, about 10,000 John Deere workers have gone on strike, and I'm going to get back to the details on that. But what's important to keep in mind is that they're not the only workers who are using their leverage in today's economy to get better working conditions, better pay, and show some pretty incredible solidarity with their fellow workers. So let me give you the details on what's going on. Um, More than 100,000 unionized employees between Hollywood production crew members, John Deere factory workers, and Kaiser Permanente nurses have overwhelmingly voted to authorize strikes and are preparing to join the picket line unless they get stronger collective bargaining agreements. And uh, John Deere did, in fact, end up going on strike. Now, about 60,000 thousand TV and film production crew workers will go on strike on Monday if their union cannot secure a new contract with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, which represents Hollywood and streaming giants such as the Walt Disney Company, Warner Brothers and Netflix. And they're demanding exactly what you would expect workers to demand. Um, You know, simple things like 
you know, longer meal breaks uh, so they can actually enjoy a meal, uh, better wages. And they also want an end. This is my favorite part to uh, lower pay for producers who just happen to be working on streaming shows. They tend to get paid less than those who uh, do the production work for uh, television shows. Yeah. Uh, it's crazy. I mean, the, the, uh, the Yahtzee, the Yahtzee thing, um, I mean, it's Friday and they have till Monday and this will shut this town down. The town that you and I both live in, uh, -hmm. LA, um, everyone's talking about it and it's just, uh, it's, it's pretty wild. I mean, like they, 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 it's, it, it would be absolutely unprecedented. I mean, I did my whole decode about it last week, um, but it would be absolutely unprecedented, like a shutdown like this. The the last time a, a kind of major Hollywood labor action happened was the writer's strike in 2008. But the writers like just don't have the power to shut this all down the way the, the crews do. You know, there's scripts lying around. There's plenty of scripts. Uh, lying around that they could shoot mm-hmm. um but if this if the crew doesn't participate uh they can't do anything yeah i mean this is what power looks like right um knowing that you have uh some level of power that you can uh, use as leverage against the employers uh, to get better obviously collective bargaining. Um, So let's also talk a little bit about Kaiser Permanente. Uh, We're talking about nurses here who haven't gotten a break at all during the pandemic. They're overworked, they're burnt out. Well, the union representing more than 24,000 Kaiser Permanente nurses and other healthcare workers in California and Oregon authorized a potential strike after contract negotiations stalled. Kaiser nurses are pushing for a 4% annual raise and ramped up hiring. Uh, They are short-staffed. As a result, they're expected to work longer hours. They're burnt out. And I mean, when you really look at what they're asking for, it's incredibly reasonable. And just think about this in the context of you know, especially in the beginning of the pandemic, everyone paying lip service, uh, talking about how healthcare workers, these frontline workers are heroes. The rhetoric is nice, but how about we get some solidarity in order for these healthcare workers to get paid what they deserve to get paid, you know? Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, it's it's striketober, as they say. Um, yeah. Do they? Uh, is that what the they pe- say? The people are saying it. Uh, I don't saying- know. People are saying it's strike over, folks. It's very spooky. <laughs> Definitely spooky for some of these major companies. By the way, yeah. um, in regard to the Kaiser workers, uh, the nurses, they oppose uh, the company's offer to increase annual pay by just 1% over the next three years and implement a two-tier system that would pay newly hired workers less than the longer tenured employees. I thought that second part was actually really good to see, you know, because they didn't want to create this division uh, among the nurses. They wanted to make sure that they're, you know, they were treated fairly equally. Um, And I think that solidarity in the workplace is really important. Um, And so you also have people who are already on strike, including 2000 New York hospital workers, 700 Massachusetts nurses, uh, 1400 Kellogg plant workers in Michigan, Nebraska, Pennsylvania, and also Tennessee. And then uh, I want to go back to the 10,000 John Deere workers who couldn't get the agreement that they wanted. And so they decided to go on strike. Now, before we get to some of the details of that strike, I think it's important to look at the health of the company. Let's take a look. You know, John Deere's profits grew by 61% in recent years. You point that out in your articles. And their CEO's salary grew by 160% during the pandemic. So why aren't employees 
getting a piece of those profits for the labor that they do every day? That is the question. I mean, shareholders are getting a piece of the profits. The stock price has doubled since the pandemic. Dividends were hiked recently by 17%. I think that's a great question for CEO John May and the company to answer. There's, the pie is growing. There's, there's a bigger piece that could be handed out to workers. Um, so I think he's right. <laughs> I think he's totally right about that. Um, so I love the fact that they rejected uh, the offer that was agreed upon by um, the United Auto Workers and uh, John Deere. Yeah, pretty remarkable times. Um, again, this is um, it's been a long time since you've seen this kind of private sector labor militancy um, across so many industries at the same exact time. Um, you know, we've saw, we've seen in years past, like a lot of labor militancy, uh, from teachers, for example, um, who, uh, you know, there was the West Virginia teacher strike. There was the, obviously the Chicago teacher strike, which kind of kicked a lot of this, this, this off, but that's, those are public sector, uh, workers slightly different. You know, the, the, the private sector activity has been just, um, you know, it's, it's just, it's been years since something like this has happened. So, um, very encouraging to see. Yeah, and there's been some polling that shows the vast majority of Americans, a whopping 77%, have a favorable view of unions. I mean, with 77%, that means that it obviously resonates across the aisle. It's something that, you know, we talk about in various contexts on this show. Um, So it's, it's important to find unity where it could actually really, really help everyone. It could really help transform society. Um, all right. That's well, remarkable we're... given like the amount of propaganda that, you know, uh, I mean, the fact the media just like never covers. I mean, it's remarkable to see like ABC News, you know, doing this kind of segment. It's just it feels weird. Like you just don't see that ever. Um, yeah. And um, and so it's remarkable that despite that, despite years of labor retreats and you know, there's just no like, you know, no one knows a labor leader anymore. You know, like it used to be that some of these labor leaders like were politician, nationwide politicians that everyone kind of knew. Um, and uh, and despite all of that, uh, people still understand in their bones that a union is good. Um, so that's that's always encouraging. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, what resonates with people is taking a look at their own lives, like how much they work, how little power they feel in the workplace. So I totally get it. I mean, think about how many people like work in a situation that's so like precarious where they're so underpaid. I mean, it's gotten to the point where, you know, when you talk about the labor shortage and I'm going to get into this in more detail in my decode segment, why would a mother decide to go to work full-time knowing that that entire paycheck is going to go toward childcare. So a lot of people are staying home instead. Um, and when, when you start experiencing it firsthand, yeah, you want more power in the workplace. I think that's what this is about, but uh, let's move on. Why don't we give our partner a quick shout out? Yes. The most important job I have on this very program is to shout out our partners at Verso Books in October, they got some new books. Some of their new books uh, this month are Who Owns the Wind, Climate Crisis, and the Hope of Renewable Energy by David McDermott Hughes, which Kale Brooks's friend is currently reading. It argues for transforming renewable power into a common resource. Naomi Klein says David Hughes is doing some of the most innovative thinking and writing about energy democracy in the world. Um, Kale Brooks's friends read it. You should read it too. 
The Spoils of War, Power, Profit, and the American War Machine by the Washington editor of Harper's Magazine, Andrew Coburn. Based on years of wide-ranging research, Coburn lays bare the ugly reality of the largest military machine in history. And Islamophobia and the Politics of Empire, 20 Years After 9-11 by Deepa Kumar, a critically acclaimed analysis of anti-Muslim racism from the 16th to the 21st centuries with a new foreword by Nadine Naber. Nice. All right. Well, you want to get started with our decodes? Yes, ma'am. All right. Let's talk child care. Let's do it. In April of this year, a whopping 64,000 women left the workforce, meaning that they weren't employed or are not looking for a job. They're just completely out of the workforce. Now, the main factor driving this uptick of women exiting the job market is the astronomical and astronomically priced and inaccessible nature of childcare in America, something that my co-host Nando Vila actually did a great decode on earlier uh, this year. Now, I wanted to revisit the issue to explore the business community's pushback against President Joe Biden's proposed solution of publicly subsidized child care and universal pre-K. Now, affordable child care was already a massive societal problem prior to the pandemic, but the problem has only gotten worse during the last year. For instance, the Treasury Department reported last month that the average cost of care is roughly $10,000 a year per child and consumes about 13% of family income, nearly twice what the government considers affordable. Now, uh, that's obviously the cost of one child. Once you have a second child, uh, the cost can double, which is why average American families spend roughly 20% of their household income on childcare. I mean, when you really take a step back and you look at the fuller context of our economy, the fact that wages have remained stagnant since the 1970s, all of this ties into just how unaffordable our privatized healthcare system really is. Now, um, at the same time, childcare workers are so overworked and so underpaid that there's a severe worker shortage within the childcare sector, which only drives up the cost of childcare. Parents who want to go back to work are faced with a new problem, a childcare shortage. The pandemic has revealed a lot uh, about the childcare system that perhaps people didn't see before. How fragile it is, how low paid the women doing this work are. But I'm not convinced that um, people really understand the disparities and pay gaps that exist in the childcare system. More than 90% of childcare workers in the U.S. are women, and just under half are people of color. On average, they earn only $12 an hour. Most do not receive benefits, and about half are on public assistance. So the situation is pretty awful. And what compounds the problem is the for-profit market-based approach that's all about maximizing profits for shareholders. Now, that translates to high prices for parents, low pay for workers, 
And while similar or smaller daycares don't survive during the pandemic, for instance, the big players actually made and continue to make big money. Now, you can call them big daycare, writes Fortune, or perhaps more accurately, big child care. Kinder Care, Learning Care Group, and Bright Horizons are the largest players in the $47.2 billion child care market, which is dominated by center-based care. So just to give you uh, some specific examples of how much revenue these big child care companies or corporations bring in, uh, for instance, in 2012, Kinder Care's company revenues were about $1.45 billion. Moody's Investor Service Inc. expected Learning Care Group to post revenue of over $700 million in its 2014 fiscal year ending in June. Now, it's really hard to find uh, detailed financial information tied to these major child care companies. They get bought out. They do things that kind of hide or shield uh, the the true money that they're bringing in. But the fact of the matter is uh, the existence of these major players is certainly not helped to make child care affordable for Americans because the very nature of these privatized businesses is to maximize profits. That means higher prices, lower pay for workers. And I'm going to really make that case throughout this segment. Now, not all daycare centers are profitable. Again, many of the smaller ones often do fail, which leads to these so-called child care deserts. It also limits options for parents in other parts of the country and drives up costs. And under Understand that childcare, uh, despite the low pay for the workers, requires a lot of resources and a lot of skill. It's not easy to take care of a you know large group of children on a daily basis, and you can't put that on one childcare worker. You need several uh, in order to be in one given room. And uh, what we're experiencing now is, given the high cost that could be associated with opening a childcare center, these big players remain, essentially creating like a monopolized system, and the smaller players just can't make it. Uh, Now, an anecdote that was shared by the New York Times actually perfectly summarizes the severity of this system. They write that until their elder son started kindergarten this fall, Jessica and Matt Lawley paid almost $2,000 a month for their two boys' care, roughly a third of their income and far more than their payments on their three-bedroom house. But one of the teachers who watched the boys earn so little, $10 an hour, that she spends half of her time working at Starbucks, where the pay is actually 50% higher and includes health insurance. Now, again, when you consider the fact that wages have remained stagnant since the 1970s, it's easy to understand why mothers find that it actually makes a lot more sense to stay home uh, with their kids rather than work all day and then see the entirety of their paycheck go toward childcare. A lot of women, when asked directly whether or not childcare was a factor, we found that upwards of 25% of those who lost their job said it was solely because of childcare. And even though the economy is recovering, many women still can't return to their jobs. It's definitely the case that the lack of childcare is holding the economy back from its full potential. The degree to which childcare is holding us back compared to other factors like the lack of vaccination or the spread of the Delta variant, that's really hard to say. But we do know that the lack of childcare is certainly holding individual women back and also harming their families in terms of the loss of income. 
So let me frame this in a way that might be persuasive to the business community that's currently trying to defeat Biden's budget reconciliation bill that would provide subsidized childcare. Uh, we have a labor shortage, and that labor shortage is partly due to the fact that women are unable to go back into the workforce. Childcare has become so incredibly expensive that women, in many cases, don't even have a choice to go back to work. Now, uh, they don't want to pay more in taxes, so they're essentially looking for short-term gain, knowing that that short-term gain is going to have a long-term negative impact on their companies, right? And to be sure, there has been a negative economic impact in regard to the lack of affordable childcare. Um, so the numbers, by the way, were already awful prior to the pandemic. Watch this video. In a normal year, the lack of childcare costs the U.S. economy more than $50 billion because parents can't work or are less productive at their jobs. That's billion with a B. Now, that might just be a small fraction of the overall economy, but in small towns, it has a huge impact on businesses and on families. Now, uh, there's fortunately a solution to all of this. And the great news is that we wouldn't even need to reinvent the wheel. Now, let me be clear. I think that it makes sense to make this a public issue, something that's funded by taxpayers that isn't privatized with a profit motive in mind. But nonetheless, the solutions that we've used in the past have worked. Let's take a look at what it was. Millions of American men went to fight overseas, leaving many factory jobs open, which women stepped in to fill. In war towns all over the United States, women are called upon to leave their homes and take jobs. That created a new problem. Women who'd mostly stayed home were now leaving every day for work, and their kids needed care. When married women with small children have to take jobs, everything possible will be done to provide day care for the children. So Congress jumped in with a solution. It created thousands of child care centers across the country that served over a half a million kids. These centers were set up um, in the same communities where uh, women were working in defense industries. And there's beautiful photographs of them, of children drinking milk, sitting on the floor with these very respectable looking teachers watching over them. And they were, you know, really seen as um, nursery education for these children. So that was something that was implemented by FDR during World War II, and uh, there was a need for it. The government saw a responsibility uh, to families considering men were going away for war, and uh, there were factory jobs and other jobs that needed to be filled. In fact, uh, Kathleen Davis over at Fast Company wrote that in response to the demands of the defense industries leading up at two and during World War II, Congress passed the Defense Housing and Community Facilities and Services Act of 1940. When the law was passed, only 28% of women were working, but by 1945, more than 34% of women were in the workforce. And the subsidized plans absolutely did work. Uh, and the government had the right frame of mind in regard to its personal response or in regard to its responsibility uh, to its people. So the government realized that with two parents working outside the home, it was a social responsibility to provide affordable and high quality childcare, just as it's a social responsibility to provide free public school for other children. 
What's important to point out about this program was that it was universal. There was no means testing. Everyone qualified for it uh, because the idea was the right idea. If you want the economy to function properly uh, while also uh, engaging in World War II, you need to ensure that you have a robust workforce. That means women are going to have to work. That means that we need to find a way to take care of the kids. And so, unfortunately, this universal childcare didn't last long. Um, so, uh, aside from that, there was also uh, an economic motivation for the government to subsidize childcare. It needed women in the workforce, just as the economy does now. Um, now, the Defense Department ran this program. Uh, or not ran this program, but the Defense Department jobs uh, had then essentially dried up as the war came to an end and there wasn't really a need for it anymore. Women were forced back into the household to be mothers. But it wasn't until two decades later where the government stepped in again with the Head Start program as part of Lyndon Johnson's War on Poverty. So this happened in 1965, and it was part of the civil rights push and an effort uh, to counter desegregation. Um, So it applied mostly to poor and mostly black families uh, where they received some assistance for pre-K programs. Uh, The programs were not universal. Uh, It only applied to those who were living in extreme poverty. And it wasn't until 1971 where Congress actually did manage to pass bipartisan legislation that would offer Americans uh, publicly subsidized child care. The only problem was it was also during the Cold War, during the Nixon administration. This is 1971. And he decided uh, that he was going to veto it because he believed in the traditional family where the woman stayed home and the man went to work. And there was also, of course, Red Scare going on uh, with the Cold War. Now, then things believe it or not, actually got a lot worse. And that happened during Bill Clinton's welfare reform, which made the already threadbare social safety net even worse. From now on, our nation's answer to this great social challenge will no longer be a never-ending cycle of welfare. It will be the dignity, the power, and the ethic of work. It changed welfare and the way that welfare is implemented so that women were forced to go to work. It's no longer feasible that you can get welfare assistance and stay home with your children for a long period of time. The law also expanded a program that provided families with vouchers to help pay for the childcare they'd now need. The way that our federal child care system is now designed. It's extremely fragmentary and it deepens inequalities because there are limited centers of high quality that will take those vouchers. If a woman's schedule changes, she could lose her voucher. If she works more hours one month than another, she might become ineligible and lose her subsidy, in which case she loses her ability to work. And then she has to go back on the waiting list. And then because the system is underfunded, there's many eligible families who are not able to access that kind of support. Not able to access that support. I mean, think about it. In order to be able to, uh, you know, qualify for those childcare vouchers, you need to be working. But in order to work, you need childcare. I mean, the system sets families up for failure. There's really no other way to look at it. 
Now, again, there are solutions, solutions that we've tried in the past, solutions that are actually being promoted by Joe Biden and progressive Democrats. Elliot Haspel, the author of Crawling Behind, explains that there's only one clear solution to making childcare affordable and accessible for all. The only thing that can fill that gap is public money. And we refuse to, to, to wrestle and acknowledge the fact that, that that's the only thing that's going to make a viable, sustainable, high-quality system is public money, because otherwise programs cut corners by slashing wages to the bone, not offering benefits, uh, you know, finding quality sort of workarounds. And I understand, because their other option is to close. And we have childcare deserts all over the place. Access is already an issue. You know, and so they don't have any other option. In order to keep your budget in the black, you basically have to be at full enrollment all the time. You have to be charging enough money to cover your costs all the time. And you have to be collecting the money from your parents all the time. And if any of those things go down, the entire enterprise crumbles and you're in the red. Yeah, it's a pretty sucky system. And when you compare the United States to other com countries, developed countries that are doing things a little differently, you can understand why we fall behind. Now, let's just break down how much the United States government spends on childcare per child compared to other developed countries. Now, in the United States, federal and federal, state, and local governments spend about $1,000 a year on care for low-income children ages two and under, and $200 on other toddlers. For children under three, only the poorest working families qualify for subsidies, but fewer than one in six even receive the help. The only government support for early care comes from the child and dependent care tax credit. If benefits high, it benefits higher earners most. The average credit is $586 and $124 for the lowest earners. Now, again, remember, things are tied to a person working, how much money they make. Uh, but when you look at other developed countries, they certainly do things uh, far differently. Uh, look at the rich countries, which contribute an average of 14000 per year for a toddler's care. These are, of course, other rich countries um, compared to the United States. Now, uh, wealthy countries in the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development spend an average of 0.7% of GDP on childcare. In Europe, new parents have paid leaves of, oh God, this always makes me incredibly jealous, 14 months and it's common for children to start public school at the age of three. Nordic countries have the most generous childcare systems. Denmark, for example, spends $23,140 per child on care for children two and under. But our politicians would have you believe that our system is the best. We're exceptional. Look at how great we are as people struggle to get back to work because they can't afford the privatized uh, market-based childcare that that's offered to them. Now, the Biden administration does propose doing something about this, uh, and that is the legislation that's commonly referred to as the Budget Reconciliation Bill. It's also the bill that Bernie Sanders is tirelessly championing, uh, rallying for, and doing incredibly annoying cable news interviews for. Uh, he's trying to get people to understand the importance, and I hope this segment helps you do that too. Now, the huge social policy bill being pushed by President Biden would cap families' childcare expenses at 7% of their income. 
offer large subsidies to childcare centers, and require centers to raise wages in hopes of improving teacher quality. A version before the House would cost $250 billion over a decade and raise annual spending fivefold or more within a few years. An additional $200 billion would provide universal pre-kindergarten. But the fate of that bill, as some of you might already know, is a little shaky. Uh, you have corrupt, uh, you know, corrupt Democrats in the Senate uh, who are far more interested in listening to their corporate donors and other members of the business community, people who fund their campaigns, who certainly don't want the passage of this bill, even though it would actually really help benefit their own businesses by ensuring that there's a labor force out there that's uh, willing to work. Um, But of course, they don't want to fight for it. Uh, They want to continue cutting their taxes. And it really is a short-sighted move considering what their personal interests are. I talk about it during a debate I had recently with Ben Shapiro. Are you talking about the right uh, the $3.5 trillion reconciliation I'm talking about the $3.5 trillion bill. The $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill offers universal pre-K which opens up the opportunity for mothers to go to work if they want to go to work. The $3.5 trillion bill, by the way, has all sorts of subsidies for corporations, which I don't really understand why the business community isn't salivating over that, because rather than just going full force with public programs, which I think would be the right way to go, it's offering all sorts of subsidies uh, in these you know, public-private partnerships. Now, the physical infrastructure bill has a lot more corporate giveaways, which is why the you know business community absolutely loves it, offers the chance to privatize public infrastructure, which is why the business community absolutely loves it. Uh, But at the end of the day, if we don't create a society where Americans can actually have families and go to work, then we're going to be in a lot of trouble. We're going to be in a lot of trouble, and we're certainly already seeing that play out with the so-called labor shortage. And Nando, you talked about this in detail uh, a few months ago. And uh, how did I do? Did I get it right? You did great. What are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I don't need me to tell you that. Um, you did great. Uh, very, very interesting. I mean, the uh, it was great that that PBS clip of the guy talking about the the private centers. I mean, that's just that's capitalism, baby. That's you know the difference between a private enterprise and a public enterprise is the need for profits. Um, mm-hmm. That you know, and uh, I mean, there's I, I won't say there's any benefits to like markets for certain type of goods or whatever, but like. For things that people need, you it just makes absolutely no sense. It just you know that's why um, you know the the easiest way I always explain to people is like you know you might like using FedEx more than the post office or whatever, but like you know if it was if we only had FedEx, they wouldn't ship to all the places. They just wouldn't, you know, because nope. it's costly to go to like some remote village in Alaska or whatever. Um, and, um, and so, so that's, and that's, there's a similar version of that with childcare where like certain communities, poorer communities, whatever that can't afford, um, as much to pay as much as richer communities. Well, then if you're a guy running a private childcare center, you're not going to go to the friggin' poor community. They can't pay, you know, go to the rich community. They can pay all they want and you can charge them whatever you want to do like whatever, you know, make your kids do yoga or something, you know? Um, (laughs) Yeah, yeah. no, totally. I mean, I just, the thing that really stands out in so many of the different like decode segments that we do is how utterly self-destructive capitalism really is, right? 
because that need to maximize profits, which means, you know, lower taxes, corporate taxes, um, you know, treating workers like crap, all of that stuff, um, you know, under funds, like the human infrastructure, the physical infrastructure, all the infrastructure necessary for those companies to even exist. Right. Yeah. And, and I just love to see it now where they're like, I mean, think about why they took Biden's agenda and they divvied divvied up it up into two different bills, right? Because in their minds, it's just the physical infrastructure that matters. Who who gives yeah. a shit about the uh the personal or, or human infrastructure? But no, human in infrastructure is incredibly important too. They're just too short-sighted to see it because all of the incentives are to be short-sighted, right. you know? Yeah, the, I mean, I think that's the key there. It's like it's not that they're bad people i mean they are bad people but that's not the point you know the point is like if they were good people they'd be replaced by by the bad people because their their not just their incentive but their existential need is to is to maximize the profit of their own company not to right. even look at themselves as like a sector or or even you know like that like they they need to destroy the people in, in the other people in their sector too so like um that's why you get this kind of thing. It's like, well, don't you guys need the roads and the thing? It's like, yeah, we need all that stuff. We need all that stuff, but like, we don't want we we don't want to pay for it. Just have someone else pay for it. We can't pay for it, you know, um, right. because they need to maximize profit all the time, every single second of the day, every waking hour, uh, and uh, and and if not, they will be replaced by someone who uh, who is willing to do that. So yeah, yeah. I mean, we'll see what happens with the reconciliation bill, but. It just blows my mind that the Senate's on recess right now and cinema's like literally in Europe fundraising. She's like, she's drinking she's like, Aperol Spritz, being a Yath queen. She's being a boss girl. Yeah. Yep. Being a boss girl. Anyway. All, All right. Righty. Well, uh, let's talk about the other part of the economy that's getting a lot of attention, uh, rightfully so, but I don't think it's being covered all that accurately. So there's the supply chain issue. Take it away. Yeah. And it's very similar to what you talked about, about um, one of the contradictions of capitalism it's, is its self-destructive nature. But in recent weeks, as you mentioned, the news has been all about our broken supply chains with a special focus on the massive amount of ships stuck outside the port of Los Angeles. This is what a broken supply chain looks like from the air. Nearly 60 cargo ships floating outside the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach. They're carrying about a quarter million containers. The workers will soon be unloading around the clock. Truckers at the port of L.A. sometimes have to line up for hours just to pick up one container. And then where do they take them? Most warehouses are full and that's delaying deliveries even further. The supply chains, folks, they're broken. They're very broken. Now, remember the early days of the pandemic when there was a mad dash to stockpile things like toilet paper? Well, it looks like the shortages could be coming back. If you've been to the store lately, you may have been met with scenes like this. Empty shelves from the cereal aisle to deodorant and paper goods. Everyday items in increasingly short supply. But more importantly, perhaps the most important thing in the world is that it looks like the supply chain backlog will affect the all-important Christmas shopping season, which so many retailers rely on. We're going into Target now. These are video diaries. It's a lot to do. From four shoppers across the country. Here we go. On a mission to buy. I feel like stuff's running out everywhere I go. Before COVID steals Christmas. Wish me luck. My grandson wants something called Beyblade. 
Karen Breen hasn't bought candy for Halloween yet. Or even thought about who's hosting Thanksgiving dinner. So what's on her mind? I am on my way to start my Christmas shopping. Yes, COVID is stealing Christmas and we're all going to be getting a lump of coal in our stockings. But COVID-19 has shown us just how vulnerable our globalized economy is to shocks. Uh, Obviously, a once in a century pandemic is something that comes around well, once every hundred years, although it does, it is safe to say that our globalized economy probably does make pandemics more likely. But there have been other incidents that have shown just how fragile the system is. Like, hey, remember six months ago when that big old boat just got stuck in the Suez Canal? A massive cargo ship spending a third day stuck in Egypt's Suez Canal, clogging one of the busiest shipping routes in the world. Rescue crews now say it might take weeks to set it free. Today, multiple tugboats failed to dislodge the ever-given. Officials say strong winds and a sandstorm knocked the ship off course. Man, because of the uh, insane breakneck pace of the news cycle, it's just like it's hard to remember news that happened more than like two weeks ago. But that was just six months ago and it feels like forever. But reminiscing about that big old beautiful ship made me kind of happy. But anyway, the fragility of global supply chains is by design. Namely, it's the idea of just-in-time production. According to Kim Moody writing in The Guardian, just-in-time was the idea of Taichi Ono, an engineer at Toyota in the 1950s who was inspired by the work of Henry Ford. Ono defined it as a way of eliminating waste, which he meant stockpiles, extra workers, and unused minutes in the production and, and movement of goods. Instead of wasting time, labor, and money by storing parts along the assembly line or warehousing goods, as manufacturers had done for decades, Ono's idea was that suppliers could instead deliver these just as they were needed. In turn, this would increase profits, reducing the amount that businesses spent on maintaining inventories and paying for additional labor. This type of manufacturing uh, made Japanese cars more competitive on the international market. This made the previously dominant American auto manufacturers very, very nervous. In fact, you don't hear about it anymore, but back in the 70s and 80s, it was really common to see bumper stickers uh, and the like urging people to, quote, buy American cars instead of Toyotas or Hondas, which were quickly taking market share from Ford and General Motors. Eventually, because competition is the name of the game in capitalism, American firms had to adopt just-in-time production as well. Here's Kim Moody again. After its introduction to the West in the 1980s, the just-in-time model gradually moved out of car plant, out of the car plant and into every type of goods and service production. It forced its way down every supply chain until each supplier, big or small, was expected to deliver products promptly to the next buyer. This increased competition between companies to deliver goods quickly, which meant firms reduced their costs, usually the price of labor, just-in-time delivery, thus contri- contributed to the growth of low-wage, often more precarious jobs, with workers recruited only when they would be needed. This constant squeezing of workers has fueled our 24-7 hustle workflow culture and the mental health problems that go with it, which, while attempts to cut the price of labor have added to the growth of economic inequality, regardless of who sits in government. But there are trade-offs for all this efficiency, not to mention, you know, the fact that it kills jobs and destroys communities. It is that it reduces resiliency in the system. In general, as efficiency increases, resilience drops, decreases. But because capitalist economies force companies to compete, they will always choose to maximize efficiency. 
Because while the system as a whole may need more resilience, the incentive for the individual firm is always going to be for more efficiency. It is one of the contradictions inherent in capitalism. But policymakers have also contributed to this, especially with so-called free trade agreements. Instead of acting as staid managers of the system, maybe introducing public policy to increase resilience, they have lubricated the mad rush towards efficiency through public policy. And perhaps the biggest offender of this was friend of the show and Jeffrey Epstein, Bill Clinton. Yes, Slick Willie, who just yesterday had to go to the hospital with a UTI, famously passed NAFTA in 1994. But perhaps less famously, but more consequentially, Bill Clinton, just before he left office, pushed for and managed to cut a trade deal with China, getting them into the World Trade Organization. This agreement is a good deal for America. Our products will gain better access to China's market in every sector from agriculture to telecommunications to automobiles. But China gains no new market access to the United States, nothing beyond what it already has. Now, what's remarkable about that is that a majority of Democrats in the House actually voted against it. There were 73 Democrats who joined 164 Republicans to approve the deal. Bill Clinton just absolutely loved to do that. He loved to pass Republican policies uh, in the face of Democratic opposition. But anyway, the deal was not just opposed by a majority of Democrats in the House. It was opposed by environmental groups and labor unions. Here is the labor-backed Economic Policy Institute writing about the deal back in the year 2000 when it happened. Quote, the administration has proposed to facilitate China's entry into the WTO at a time when the U.S. has already already has a massive trade deficit with China. In 1999, the U.S. imported approximately $81 billion in goods from China and exported $13 billion, a 6 to 1 ratio of imports to exports that represents the most unbalanced relationship in the history of U.S. trade. While exports generated about 170,000 jobs in the United States in 1999, Imports eliminated almost 1.1 million domestic job opportunities for a net loss of 880,000 high-wage manufacturing jobs. China's entry into the WTO under PNTR, which means Permanent Normal Trade Relations, with the U.S. will lock this relationship into place, setting the stage for rapidly rising trade deficits in the future that would severely depress employment in manufacturing, the sector most directly affected by trade, China's accession to the WTO would also increase income inequality in the U.S. Those criticisms were deemed absurd by the very serious people in Washington. The Washington Post editorial page and business leaders and other think tanks, think tanks all supported the deal. But as Jordan Weissman writes in Slate, quote, in hindsight, the fears weren't absurd at all. In the months immediately after Congress voted to normalize trade with China, dozens of U.S. corporations announced that they were moving manufacturing overseas. And once China officially joined in the WTO in 2001, the country rapidly began transforming into an export behemoth as foreign investment and factory work flooded into the country. Its surplus with the United States alone rose from $83 billion in 2001 to more than $295 billion in 2011. During the same 10-year period, U.S. manufacturing employment, which had stayed essentially steady in the years after NAFTA, declined from about 17.1 million to 11.8 million. Manufacturing had been withering as a share of America's labor market for many, many years, but the shockingly fast collapse of the early 2000s simply convulsed blue-collar communities. The outsourcing of jobs destroyed untold communities in the U.S. It also made capitalists very rich. But it also made our supply chains longer and more vulnerable to shocks. The Chinese, meanwhile, 
were much more judicious in their own development. Chinese policymakers are not free market fundamentalists and often implement much more protectionist policies to spur their own capacities. Here's Ho Feng Hung writing in Jacobin. Quote, after China got what it wanted in terms of U.S. policy, China changed its policy to make sure foreign companies like AT&T could not have majority stakes in leadership in China's telecommunications sector. And Beijing started to cultivate its state-owned telecommunication giants like China Mobile and China Telecom to dominate the market and marginalize foreign countries. The situation became much more apparent in 2010 and thereafter. In fact, just this week, China essentially, essentially shut down LinkedIn, the last American social media platform that was able to operate in the country. No more joining my professional network on LinkedIn in China. So the U.S. normalized trade relations with China. In theory, this was going to give American firms access to the vast Chinese market. What actually happened was that American firms outsized their productive operations to China because the labor costs were cheaper. But the Chinese regulated their market to limit the, American, the ability of American firms like, say, social media platforms to get access to the Chinese market. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not passing judgment on the Chinese for doing this. It is, in fact, a rational policy from their perspective. But American policymakers are constantly complaining about China's dastardly cheating in the fair game that is the free market. And increasingly, they are starting to realize that a laissez-faire approach cannot compete with an approach driven by state planning. Remember, it was Bill Clinton that led this charge in the 1990s. These days, his wife, Hillary Clinton, sings a very different tune. Increasingly, the Chinese government, uh, through coercion, through unfair regulation, through enforced uh, partnerships or royalty agreements, is slowly stealing that intellectual property anyway. So I do think that we've got to get smarter about how we deal with the economic threat. And for people who say, oh, well, you know, that, that, that disrupts the market. China has disrupted the market. China is not a free market economy. We tried. We let them into the World Trade Organization. We sent our businesses over. There. Oh, yeah. She says we got to take back the means of production in that clip. It's kind of amazing. So what to make of all of this? Like I said, one of the inherent contradictions of capitalism is that companies need to compete to make the system on the whole more, the companies need to compete makes the system on the whole more vulnerable. That drive for competition makes capitalists find efficiencies to reduce labor costs, whether it is just-in-time production or robots that do the work of humans. But according to Marx, it is labor that creates profits because unlike machines, humans can produce in excess of what they are paid. A machine just produces what it produces. But individual capitalists are incentivized to reduce labor costs through technology or more efficient manufacturing process to get a short-term advantage over his competitor. But eventually, the other capitalists realize this and catch up, causing the rate of profit to fall over time. And indeed, the rate of profit has been falling pretty steadily since World War II. Now, when the rate of profit goes down, well, capitalism enters into a crisis. And as you can see from the chart, the 1970s saw a major crisis in profitability, which is what led capitalists and the system they controlled to institute neoliberalism, which kind of stabilized the bleeding when it came to profits for a little while. But then it all came crashing down again in 2008. The rate of profit rebounded somewhat after that, but now it is going down again and will likely continue to go down because, well, that's what it does over time. It's inevitable. So the question will become, how does the system respond? Well, there could be more just straight coercion and authoritarianism. That's certainly in the cards. 
but the weakness of the system also presents opportunities. Hey, remember that big old boat that paralyzed the global uh, paralyzed global trade by just getting your big old butt stuck in the Suez Canal? Well, workers have the power to do that as well. The lack of resilience in these hyper-efficient supply chains means that a comparatively small number of workers can exert tremendous power. I spoke last week about just about how just 60,000 IATSE members could stop literally the entire entertainment industry overnight, causing a multi-billion dollar industry to just shut down. And this is true all across the supply chain. And that is why these, this mini little strike wave we're seeing is so encouraging. In the past few years, labor militancy has been driven largely by teacher strikes, which are disruptive, don't get me wrong, but much more manageable than a strike that affected the supply chain. As we enter striketober with hundreds of thousands of workers taking action, it is a, the perfect time to hit at the system when it is most vulnerable. We must do whatever we can to encourage this kind of worker militancy. Yes, you may get frustrated when you can't get your treats for Christmas, but think of the big picture. If there is, a, if there is no resurgent and powerful labor movement, when the capitalists and then the capitalists will have free reign to reset the system to deal with the crisis of profitability. And if you thought neoliberalism 1.0 was bad, the sequel will likely be much nastier. That was great. Um, really good, comprehensive explanation of what's going on uh, with the right lens. Uh, you know, there's also the other side of it that I think is at least worth mentioning. Um, you know, the inflation that we're experiencing right now um, is obviously hurting a lot of uh people lower on the socioeconomic ladder. And so while it's like incredibly encouraging to see labor flex its power because they have leverage right now, there's the other side of it as well. Like there's a lot of sacrifice going on um, mm -hmm. because especially when it comes to strikes, you're, you're risking a lot to do that strike. Um, and uh, disrupting supply chains also does mean um, inflation, so increase in, in the cost of goods and services that people need. Uh, but I do think that this is um, a really, really important opportunity uh, to use leverage that workers know that they have, and I'm really happy to see it, not just um, in regard to organized labor and those represented by unions, but also by individual workers who don't have that kind of representation, who are like, no. I'm not going back to work. I'm, I'm looking for something different. Like you're seeing that across the board as well in various sector, sectors. And it's forcing uh, employers to increase wages to attract workers back. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, it, it, you know, it's, it's, it's not a coincidence that, um, you know, in the 1970s, which was an era of high inflation was also an era of like, I mean, there were strikes all the time. I mean, like just all the time. It was like a fact of life. Uh, because workers were getting squeezed um, by by the high inflation, um, so it you know there there does seem to be a trend there you know that uh, that, that it might be spurring the kind of current um, labor militancy to some degree. Um, so yeah, I mean it's just uh, it's um, it's it's interesting to to see and to to think about um, in the near term because like they're going to do something to, to, to make the system flow again, you know, like they're going to do something. And, the, but the fact is like, I don't know, I've seen, I don't know if you've seen in the UK, like where they, they, they have like this like massive trucker shortage. Um, mm -hmm. And so like they're, they're having like long lines at, you know, the gas pump, even though they have oil, you know, they have gas. It's not like a gas shortage. It's a logistics problem because due to trucker shortages. And it's like, what happens if they, you know, if their choice is between like, 
you know, just making it more attractive to become a truck driver or just like forcing people to <laughs> drive trucks, you know? Um, I mean, that's, that's kind of what the, the, the choices are going to be is like, is either they're either they have to, they have to find some way to compel workers back. And, um, you know, whether that's going to be more authoritarianism or, um, or, or just, you know, improving conditions like it is usually up to, yeah. um, up to us, up to the left, up to the workers, you know, the, the that's, that's kind of what the problem is. Did you just get an yeah. allergy attack? Yeah, I did. Was, oh my God. My segment, I was like... so beauti- my segment was so beautiful that it made you, that it made you tear up. <laughs> it got emotional. No, it, it's funny because I'm like, I wonder if it's super obvious. I'm like trying to keep it together, but yeah, I got an allergy attack. It, I've been really struggling this morning with allergies. It yeah. sucks. Um, oh, thank you, but anyway, Joshua really Bauman. That's nice. Aww. Um, all right. Well, why don't we get to our interview because Ben's with us. Uh, so Ooh. joining us now is host of Give Them an Argument, also author of the book, Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left, and the forthcoming book, Christopher Hitchens, What He Got Right, How He Went Wrong, and Why He Still Matters. What's up, Ben? How are you? I'm really good, Ed. How are you? Good, good. Um, so let's let's talk. Let's chat. You and I um, had some... <laughs> some debates. We gave some people some arguments. <laughs> so we mm-hmm. wanted to go over that. Um, so your debate with Charlie Kirk isn't available yet. I'm really looking forward to uh, watching it. But do you want to share some of your thoughts on it? Uh, sure. So it uh, will be available next week. Um, they're going to run it on the 21st. Uh, and then give them an argument and also town circle, which is the organization that kind of set it up are going to get it after that. So we're going to run it on the 25th, but I guess just general thoughts. I I think um, that, you know, the main thing I was trying to do in the debate, and I'm sure that there'll be people who will watch it, you know, who are, who are leftists who will say, Oh, you know, Ben was, you know, cause I, you know, I'm, very polite when I have like this. I'm sure people, you know, people, oh my God, Ben being friendly with this fascist, you know, just having a nice chat. But uh, the, the main uh, the main thing I was trying to do in the debate was to poke a couple, you know, poke some holes in the pretense that Kirk has been doing, which is not unique to Kirk. Like lots of Republicans are doing this now. Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, uh, lots of them uh, have have adopted this shtick that. Um, that Kirk will say, well, he's not like a, one of the old style corporate Republicans, you know, he's some sort of populist. Uh, and so the main thing I wanted to do was just to show how absurd it is for like this pure Reaganite, like Charlie Kirk to go around pretending to be some kind of populist. And I feel like mission accomplished because if nothing else, it was a solid hour of him giving me like Wall Street Journal editorial arguments against raising the minimum wage and giving people <laughs> health care and making it easier to organize unions and whatever you think of the arguments back and forth themselves, like that kind of feels like a win. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I was away when this uh, story happened, but, you know, his like weird fear mongering about sexual anarchy. <laughs> yes, it's like they tr- they try to rebrand Sounds themselves fun. and then they slip. There's like a leak. And then like they mention things like sexual anarchy, which, yeah, exactly. Like, sounds great. What's <laughs> yeah, yeah. Want uh, rules like I don't get it <laughs> anyway. Right. Yeah, which which and I mean, it's funny, even in that clip. I mean, obviously, whatever he remembers is 
the sexual anarchy, right? And it's just like, oh, what does that mean? You know, that's that sounds fun. But uh, the within that clip where he said the thing about sexual anarchy, you could tell he was really trying to have it both ways because all right, try to do the big populist rebranding, but you know, he's also been uh, like, you know, he was a young conservative when he was 17 or whatever. And, you know, and, and, and he's just been doing that ever since. So it's almost like the old programming has reasserted itself. Like a, you know, like a, I don't know, like a robot in some schlocky movie. That's like, you know, really confused about what it's supposed to do in some situation. And so he's trying to have it both ways. He tried to do the populist thing. He uses the phrase the ruling class in the clip. Uh, he talks about, you know, elites, you know, like liberal elites in Manhattan and Malibu. And he names off a bunch of locations like this. But he also says that one of the things that these ruling class elites want to do is to make private property a thing of the past. It's like, okay, I, I don't think so. Um, mm. I, I'm pretty sure that rich people like having money. Yeah, yeah. seriously. Mm-hmm, yeah. They like their private property. They, I mean, the whole point of having the house in Malibu is to get away from all the mucky muck, you know, that you're, <laughs> that you're, you're not, you're not with the riffraff. It's the whole point. Um, but I, I think in general, um, you know, the, I, I, one of the things that, I mean, you wrote a whole book about it, um, but I, maybe you can expound on it is, um, is why do you think it's important to do this? You know, like, why do you think mm-hmm. it's important to, and Anna, you did the same thing with Ben Shapiro. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, it's not a pleasant thing. It's not, a, you know, it's not, a, mm-hmm. it's not a fun thing. You know, I like hanging out with you guys and talking to you guys. It's not like a pleasant, fun thing to like have to prepare and the thing and then go and then, you know, hang out with these people and stuff. Um, why do you think it's important to do that? Like, why is it important to say, give them an argument and not, uh, you know, the opposite of that, which is, I guess, I don't know. I don't know what the opposite of that is. Well, let me, let me actually jump in real quick because there was something, I think that's the most important question, right? Because I, contrary to what people might think, like I actually don't love a lot of attention. Like I don't go out of my way to like draw a lot of attention to myself on social media and stuff. Um, and I'm a pretty private person um, outside of what I do at TYT and, and on this show. So like doing more on camera debating and discussing politics is like already kind of painful for me. But doing it in like the type of environment I did it in, this was the Pennsylvania Chamber of Commerce. No one there was a supporter of mine, um, save for one employee at the venue that we had the, prote- uh, the uh, debate at and my husband who came with me. And so I did it because whether I like it or not, Ben Shapiro has a massive, massive following. And for someone who might not be super informed on politics or, or how our economic system really works, look, he's, he's really clever in the way he frames his arguments. He talks quickly with a lot of confidence. And people think that he's, he's right on the issues. Remember, he's the one who popularized the phrase, uh, the facts don't care about your feeling. So he's really positioned himself as this like logical guy who puts feelings aside to debate the facts, you know, to put the facts out there. And so for me, it wasn't about convincing Ben of anything or even, of course, convincing the Chamber of Commerce of anything. I just knew that because he has a big following, people are going to weigh in on the debate. And it's going to give me an opportunity to like, hopefully um, further popularize what we stand for um, and maybe even convince some on the right 
who uh, might have been convinced to misdirect their anger toward the powerless to like really rethink the power structures in the country. So again, it's not about legitimizing anyone or validating anyone. It's the exact opposite of that. It's about putting myself in a situation where I can, you know, uh, confront the misconceptions or confront the things that I think are wrong in real time and then allow for that to just kind of spread as it has on the internet, um, where it gets a lot of attention, both from his audience and also from uh, people who follow my work. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Uh, I should also say that I, I think, so So I, I guess basically I'd say two things about why to, to debate uh, these people. Uh, one of them is, you know, because a lot of people will say, you know, on, on the left, oh, you shouldn't do this. Uh, sometimes they'll like, you say like, uh, I think I actually saw Anna talking about this on, on Twitter, the people who say that she was uh, platforming and Shapiro, which yeah. is hilarious because... Yeah. Uh, Number one Facebook uh, account in the universe. Yeah, we have some graphics showing that uh, these are recent graphics. Uh, I'm sorry, recent numbers from Facebook's oh. top ten. He doesn't well, it's nice just to show see up. I love once. pause is number one, uh, and then everything else. Yeah, this account does this um, like every day. They they show the like top like the ten Facebook accounts that have had like the most like and shared things in the last 24 hours. Every single day, always at least one of them is Ben Shapiro. Sometimes like four of them are Ben Shapiro. Yeah. Uh, and unfortunately, we'd, we'd live in a much better world if this were the case. But unfortunately, like, Jacobin is never in the top ten. Right? Like, uh, so yeah. what, what we believe just reaches a much smaller audience than what they believe. I mean, like, that's just the sort of bottom line, you know, uh, arithmetic of it. And so this idea that um, in context that both audiences will pay attention to, which is what a debate is, and I think one of the reasons it's so important, because we live in a time, actually this came up a little bit, that is debate with Ben Shapiro, uh, where the media is incredibly fragmented. And I really liked, by the way, that uh, Anna kept talking about profit incentives when explaining how this works. And uh, Ben's explanation for why the media was so fragmented, I'm not making this up, was, well, it's because of distrust, you know, because of, like, liberal media bias. Like, yeah, I mean, okay, the, the, the right wing was complaining about that in 1954, you know, that's that's not why traditional yeah. media has collapsed, you know, it's changing technology and, 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 uh, and changing economics, you know, is, is why that's happened. But because it has happened, and people generally don't access things outside of their uh, their media bubbles because now everybody can have, everybody can curate, you know, their own little media diet. You know, if, if I, um, you know, somebody is, is a right winger, you know, they, they can, they can like have all the time watching the news they could ever ask for without ever encountering anybody to, you know, to the left of, um, you know, to the left of Brit Hume. Right, you know, yeah. or or maybe even not even that far left if somebody, and you know that there are good things about this that you know voices that were excluded from the sort of traditional media that Chomsky and Herman were talking about manufacturing consent, you know now I think have a little bit more of a chance to find their audiences. I mean that's obviously right, you know stuff yeah. like this show, but uh, but the bad thing about it is that it, it makes it even harder uh, to break through 
those bubbles to, you know, get people, you know, to access people, the other ones. And you're just not going to, you know, if, if I do, you know, if, if I do a segment on, on Ben Shapiro on, on my show, or, you know, you guys do one on, on this show, that's great. I think there's value in that. I think it gives people who watch it talking points and ammunition, you know, when they engage with people they might know who take those arguments seriously, but nobody who likes Ben Shapiro is going to see that. Um, whereas if you debate Ben Shapiro, then you're actually speaking to his audience. And when people raise these worries about platforming and all of that, it seems to be that they think that Ben Shapiro is so persuasive um, that like leftists who would have been rooting for Anna are going to see that and, and, and start becoming facts, don't care about your feelings, conservatives. Yeah. Uh, but one, just mathematically, that's a bizarre worry. That they, they yeah. already have an audience that's like 20 trillion times the size of our audience. You know, like like we're, we, we stand to benefit from this, even all else being equal, much more than they do. And two, uh, that's just like kind of a depressing failure of confidence. In, right. Uh, in what we stand, like, like that, that we think that we're that unpersuasive, that, you know, we're more worried that, you know, that the comparatively small number of people who agree with us are going to be swayed, you know, by, by them than, than vice versa. And, and I guess last thing I'd say about this is just that a lot of people, I think, and this is what like a lot of that first book was about, like we'll conflate a couple different things. One is, um, is Ben Shapiro going to be convinced? Is Charlie Kirk going to be convinced? Of course not. That's not the, you know, you're never trying to persuade the other person on the stage or the other side of the YouTube screen. Uh, and the question is not, will the most hardcore fan be convinced? Because again, it's not. The question is, anybody who's watching who uh, who might be somewhat sympathetic to these figures, but is also, um, you know, but uh, is somewhat sympathetic, you know, to these, uh, to these figures, but, um, you know, but isn't married to it, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And is somewhat open. Or maybe who even used to be a hardcore fan, but just happens to be in a place in their life where they're open to hear another perspective. That's who you're talking to. And it can actually be really effective. Like anybody who does this has, has certainly heard those testimonials about people who have, uh, you know, who have have come around. Uh, and and it, it's also it's also just often really unconvincing. Like because I've never heard somebody say, "Oh, nobody ever is ever really convinced by this stuff." Every single time where I actually know somebody about something about that person's life. They've always changed their mind about things, and it's like something you mm-hmm. just do that randomly. Did you have reasons? You know, is maybe somebody you know compelling doing this? And, and I think, in particular, um, what I liked about Anna's Ben Shapiro debate is the way it was obvious that she was. It's like okay, the Chamber of Commerce definitely not going to be convinced. You know? <laughs> you know, there were a few like never know. there were. A few thrown to like oh hey here's something that you guys want that's like so greedy and self-destructive that it'll even hurt you but like i think you got that like okay the chamber of commerce is not gonna you know it's not gonna be on your side under any circumstances so let's pitch this to the the larger audience the much bigger audience that's gonna see this and and i love that opening presentation you know it was all about like oh um hey here's what people's lives are like you could improve it by organizing a union and, you know, going on strike and all that stuff and ignoring the, the culture war distractions and, and which I love as a message, but also I love that that forced Ben Shapiro and some of his responses to be like, well, actually I think the culture war is very important. Right. So it's like, okay, yeah. 
perfect, right? Make him be the one who's like, hey, you know this annoying, endless thing that just permeates everything right now? I like it. I want it to go on forever. You know? Totally. To- I'm so happy you caught that because... It, okay, so there were a few different events, actually. There was one closed event that was only available to, like, super high-paying members of the Chamber of Commerce. Like, no mm. one has video for that because it wasn't filmed. And um, when we sat down for that part, it was 30 minutes, it became very clear to me that they did not intend on discussing economic issues, that they wanted to focus only on culture war issues, COVID, that kind of stuff. And so right then and there in front of everyone, I just, I got asked a question. I don't even remember. I think it was about masks or something. And I just immediately dismissed it as a boring culture war issue. And once I used the word boring, I noticed that Ben awkwardly chuckled. Like you could tell, like I just completely dismissed it. He didn't Mm -hmm. expect that to happen. And so it it was really clear to me that like once we do the main event, which is um, what you're referring to, Ben, I needed to find a way to like keep doing that and mm-hmm. keep getting in the talking point, not even talking points, the thoughts that I have about what actually matters, you know, the labor uh, comment that I made in the very beginning. And then you actually asked for, um, or, or you mentioned the the part of the debate that actually happened after the main event. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're in a small room and we have the uh, virtual audience asking us some questions. And that was the part that I actually kind of forgot about and uh you mentioned it so we got a few clips of that because actually this this is what i wanted the entirety of the event to be about and notice that as we're discussing capitalism and the economy he's not as confident as he is when he's discussing something like uh critical race theory right <laughs> so before we get to that stuff um i do want to talk a little bit about this moment yeah. um Ben got checked by me after he kept talking about how great it is that uh, capitalism and profit motives exist. He thinks they're wonderful. Uh, here he is. And here's the moment I'm talking about. I mean, obviously, I don't, I don't consider profit motive a dirty word. In fact, I think the profit motive is, is one of the single greatest things that has ever happened to humanity is when people began to realize that, that innovation was going to create greater wealth for them and for the people who actually got their products. This is one of the things that has progressed humanity just enormously since the beginning of the 1800s. The profit motive is a wonderful, wonderful thing. It is not, it is not a, a negative thing. Now, with, with, It depends on what you're talking about, though. Um, well, wasn't, a, wasn't a positive thing in Texas with their privatized, deregulated power grid, well, uh, no, which it's, led it's to partially. 210 Texans dying because they didn't want to spend the money necessary to weatherize their equipment. So and, there are certain areas where profit motive is, in fact, a dirty word. Well, um, so I want no, to just clarify the, that. No, I mean, when the state is involved with profit motive, then you have a real problem. The state paying for power for example, or when you have the state driving regulations toward, for example, green energy and subsidizing particularly less effective forms of energy because they have an incentive in order to do so that is not paid off for by the risk they take, that also drives some really bad incentive structures. So he's just kind of like, if you're paying attention to what he's saying, it really doesn't make any sense. (laughs) No, it it doesn't. There's actually, I think shortly after that or around that part of it, there's, there's a place where uh, you brought up, you know, because it was a big, you know, conservative talk. It feels like 100 years ago, but it was a big conservative talking point during the Obama administration that the government had funded Solyndra, you know, they, they'd given them a subsidy and, you know, and, and it had gone under. He said, okay, but also Tesla, right, you know, was, was, was a result of not, you know, the profit motive, you know, leading to innovation, but um, 
state planning <laughs> leading to innovation and then, you know, the profits being privatized, which is exactly what happened. And he said, okay, well, there's Tesla, but, you know, there's also like, you know, government, you know, when the government, you know, uh, subsidizes research, you know, the, the, sorry, I, I can't talk fast enough to actually sound like Ben Shapiro. I'm going to stop, I'm going to stop trying. But, uh, but, you know, he says, he says this and he says, oh, there are like a hundred other cases, you know, where, where they, they subsidize things and, and nothing came out. And I just watched that. I thought, what? Like, Yes, of course. You're literally describing how science works, how technological progress works. You try a bunch of different things and most of them don't work out, but then like some do. That's, that's, you know, that's how, you know, experimental research works. That's how developing any technology works, you know, that you have to have some sort of process whereby a bunch of false starts are tried and then you find the stuff, uh, the find the stuff that actually works. But of course, Ben talks so quickly and he sounds so confident that in the moment, it's easy to just hear that and be like, oh, good point. Good point, Ben. You know, <laughs> like that's, you know, like and, and actually what he's describing is exactly why it's nonsense to say that the profit motive is the only thing that brings forward technological change, because uh, this is actually a huge problem uh, because, uh, you know, trying a bunch of things that might someday lead to something that, you know, that might have a good result is incredibly unprofitable, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're taking a big short-term loss. This is this is why after MERS and SARS, you know, people, you know, uh, the they, the pharmaceutical companies, you know, weren't all over, you know, trying to research, you know, coronaviruses because, like, yeah, that's you know, you're you're sinking money into something that might pay off at some time in the future, but like, that's not really, you know, that's not really what the stockholders want to hear right now. Yeah. Right. I think I think one of the things that um you know hearing you guys talk one of the things that people don't understand about um how people are convinced of something is that it's not the uh Aaron Sorkin West Wing version where uh you know there's a debate to be had and the 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 disgusting right winger is like you know what sir your arguments, you know, shaking their hand and tip of the hat yeah, to you. Or and, they're just like the Republicans um, the West Wing. They're always just stunned into silence, you know, yeah. by the eloquence. So no, they're keep talking. They're going to keep saying all the bullshit they usually say. Right. But ideally, and this is, by the way, why I hate the sort of like Oxford Union style debate where people like take votes at the end, like as if mm. that proves anything about anything. Because no. the way persuasion normally works, all the times in my life I've ever heard a good argument for something I didn't already think or that I, that I disagree with. I was just annoyed by it originally. I think that's like yeah. how humans usually work. Yeah. Uh, the way persuasion works is it's like over time you think back to it, you're like, when you have a little bit less ego at stake, I'm not saying Ben Shapiro, you know, I, I think he's hopeless, right? But like people who actually are persuadable who might watch this, you know, you think back to it's it like, and you're like, wait a second, that didn't make sense. Yeah. It's a, it's like you plant a little seed and, and, and the seed is almost imperceptible. But if you poke a hole in an argument, and 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 I think that the one of the one of the things that they say also about persuasion is that once you poke the hole, if you kind of shut up, you know, and like don't insist upon it, you're almost like you, you know, like the, the hard part is realizing when you've poked it, you know, enough. Yeah. But it, it, the best thing you can do is shut up and like walk away. And in the moment, the person will feel very annoyed and feel feel very uh, like you said, uh, flustered by it and angry at you. But that seed then germinates over time and they probably don't even remember. They probably won't even remember what was the thing that caused it. Yeah, when they but first it might started germinate. thinking about this. Yeah. Right, yeah. 
exactly. And, and, and they might even not even remember the exchange or whatever. Um, but that is but that is how you persuade people. So if you debate someone like Ben Shapiro or Charlie Kirk for the people in their audience or, or the people out in the world, if you can poke a hole in their argument and show kind of like a an inconsistency or, or, or like have like a moment where like there's like a laugh line or something and then you just kind of let it sit. Yeah. No, totally. Um, in fact, I, I want to get to the, the rest of the videos because I think that there's a, an example of that, right? Mm -hmm. There were multiple moments where I wanted to interrupt him. And to be fair, I do interrupt him a few times um, to, nice. to poke Good. the holes, right? Um, yeah. But there were moments where he was just rambling on and on um, and it wasn't really making sense. And I was like, give him enough rope, right? So let's let's start with the first clip on that. Uh, here, Ben is rambling about how awesome capitalism is. I don't think the capitalist class exists in opposition to the worker class. I don't think that my workers, uh, you know, the, the, the people who work for my company exist in opposition to me. I think that I, you know, I, I really don't know many people who run businesses who are out to quote unquote, exploit their labor and treat them like garbage. Uh, I don't think that that is something that they wake up seeking to do. I think that, in fact, what the what private business has done is drive competition. Oh, yeah. wait, did it end there or yeah. I don't know what happened with that? Kale's, Kale's, uh, Kale's trigger happy today with the cutting off of the video. Yeah, so I, th uh, I, think, I think the clip. Um, OK, so I think we talked about yeah. the, something that was a little bit longer after that. Uh, because, because in the, the response, the response to this, right. You kind of let him yeah. go for a while. We have that. I, I cut okay. that as a separate clip. So why don't we okay. actually go to that? And then we'll, yeah, we'll discuss as an employer, right. It's not that you, you have to be awful to your employees, but you have a fiduciary responsibility to your shareholders to return you know, to, to provide a return on their investment. That's literally like it's baked into the system. That's true. And so as a result, I mean, what's the most expensive uh, cost within a business? It's always it's labor. labor. It's course. always labor. So when we talk about exploitation, right? Exploitation always makes it seem like you're actively brutal and awful to your employees, which in some cases that does happen. But it doesn't even have to get that far. The whole point is to extract as much labor for the lowest possible price that can only in happen order in to situation. increase profits and provide a return yeah. of investment that, to your just, shareholders. That's just the way the system works. That's wrong. <laughs> yes. Uh, what I love about this whole thing is that even though Ben's whole thing is that he, he speaks very quickly and he sounds very confident about whatever he said, uh, as you pointed out a minute ago, he did a lot of like rambling and stonewalling in this. And you could tell that he was flustered, you know, that he got under his skin a little bit because like he, he doesn't like he doesn't quite know what to say. And so he's just going to kind of kind of keep talking about it for uh, for for a little while, which is yeah. definitely what's he going was, on there. He's, he's been trained to debate like leftists in college, you know, like, you know, like some like blue haired, uh, you know, college kid uh, or whatever, you know, <laughs> like not a not a, you know, not a seasoned pro. No, exactly. Okay. I mean, I mean yeah, yeah. Seriously. Yes. Like that's that's yeah, that, that is exactly right. And and what I love so much about that that contrast is first that he is, you know, like he, I don't know, like it almost sounds like his feelings are hurt. Like you know, people just you know, just trying to you know, treat the workers like garbage, you know, and and it's ironically, 
you know, for the facts don't feel don't care about your feelings guy, kind of emotional. And uh, and then in Anna's response, she's 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 very calm. She she's laughing a little bit, you know, uh, and uh, and but then she gives this like very like um, this very like level explanation of like, no, I'm not talking about like the you know, the thought, you know, like the feelings, you know, that, that happened to, to happen in some capitalist heads. I'm talking about this is literally how the system works. And she gives this like very clear, very intuitive explanation of how it works structurally. And his response is to say, well, that's only true in a monopolistic situation, which um, one, I mean, just clearly not, right? I mean, the idea that only in monopolies is there, you know, is there an incentive to try to, you know, pay workers the least you can, you know, you can get away with uh, with paying them. And and then, I mean, if you think about it more, what he's really saying is like, oh, in like a, some hypothetical econ 101 fantasy of perfect competition where there were lots and lots of different jobs that you could go to if you're, where like the situation of a worker uh with like choosing employers was the same as the situation of like a consumer driving past one gas station to fill up at another one where his headset's cheaper. That it was just that easy to change employers. Uh, so, so the idea I think doesn't make sense on reflection, but also even in the moment, if you're listening to that as a normal person, very clear, very intuitive um, explanation of of what exploitation means, and then a response that's just like basically. You know, I don't think he expects any normal person to listen to that and have any idea what he's talking about. That's only true in a monopolistic situation. That's just Ben's way of saying, well, you know, trust me, I know a lot about economics. Yeah, it's just words that, that you know, it, there's no, it doesn't need to make it a whole lot of sense. It's just like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, totally, 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 dude. You know, yeah. it's, it's one of those. Yeah. Yeah, he speaks uh, super confidently. And also, like, I just want to note, um, mm-hmm. I I was super, I'm going to say nervous. I was nervous about the event because I know I'm walking into uh, an environment that is not very friendly to what Mm -hmm. we believe. Um, And I didn't know what to expect with Ben personally because, you know, Cenk Uger had debated him in 2017 and it got pretty nasty, um, Mm -hmm. especially the aftermath of that. So I didn't know what to expect. um, And I kind of had my guard up, but he was incredibly friendly, incredibly nice and like warm. And I want to give him props for that because Mm -hmm. it didn't feel fake. It it, it felt like he was just, even though we disagree deeply on politics and culture, um, he just seems to be like a nice guy, right? So Mm -hmm. yeah, so there's that. And then I wanted to just end with um, the final video, which was how the overall situation ended. This is a little lengthier, um, but I love the ending here. So let's watch. It's an economic fallacy that that there is an impoverishment of workers that goes on under a laissez-faire capitalist system in which companies are actually competing for a commodity. Labor is a commodity. When you have companies that are competing for the same labor, the price of labor goes up. And this is one of the great fallacies of Marxist theory is that there would be a general impoverishment of workers that would lead to the workers of the world rising. The fact is the living standards in industrial countries have been rising steadily and that that living standards in non-industrialized countries, non-capitalist countries have been crap for nearly all of human history. Wages have been stagnant since the 1970s. So the argument that, you know, these companies are competing for labor, it's a cute argument until you take a look at the so actual question. data. What happened, been to labor, for what, happened to, what happened to labor between 1800 and 1970? And has the government grown smaller or larger since 1970? 
Well, I mean, it's well, it's interesting that you bring up that time period because the largest expansion of the middle class happened following the New Deal, and the New Deal uh, redistributed wealth and you know By the way, certainly since, gave a lot more power to the worker in the workplace. Since the 19- that's been rolled back since since the 1970s, the notion that the middle class has been destroyed is a fallacy. The middle class is largely becoming upper middle class. I, Nearly fifty percent of Americans can't afford a four hundred dollar emergency. It I think pains that's- me to interrupt this discussion because <laughs> it is fascinating. I know we started off by saying I heard the word agree 10 times, but we brought you here specifically for these discussions because you don't always agree. But I feel like the conversation was always was cut short once we would get into it with economic policy, which was frustrating because I wanted to keep going. But um, anyway, yeah. it was a good ending, I guess. No, I think that was actually a perfect ending because like what we just saw, right? There's like a solid minute of, you know, Ben trying very hard but sounded very unconvincing like he's just kind of throwing out like a lot of disconnected uh talking points he's calling everything a fallacy which which by the way i i, I can't help myself not what that word means but uh you know he's, he's doing all of that uh yeah and and you're you just kind of keep bringing him down to earth but it's like okay but when was the biggest expansion of you know the middle class when when, when was the you know uh what what are you talking about? Wages have been stagnating, but people can't afford this four hundred dollar emergency. And and I, I think it's well, I think the best you could hope for is that they're going to cut you yeah. off, and so the whole thing is going to end at a point when you're so clearly in the argument um, about something that like he just again he's clearly you know like you said earlier he wants to talk about critical race theory, he wants to talk about masks, you know these things are catnip you know for 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 his base. And, Superman uh, he, is gay now, dude. He's fucking gay, Superman. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, totally. You know, gay He's Superman. Gay. Yeah. Like, like them being upset <laughs> about gay Superman and people yelling at them about it and them saying, oh, you're you know, triggered much. Like, that's the conversation they want to have. Uh, how is it that, uh, that, you know, ordinary people can't afford a $400 emergency in the richest country of the earth is obviously not the conversation they want to have. And by the way, uh, I, I love the fact that he's putting all this emphasis on employers having to compete for workers because what have we seen in like the last six months continually? The Ben Shapiro's of the world, conservatives, uh, you know, small business owners, managers of Taco Bell's, uh, Republican uncles on Facebook, constantly whining about the fact that we are for once in a situation where they actually do have to compete for labor and that that actually does yeah. put them at the structural disadvantage. That code shows so clearly that what they're used to is that not even remotely being the case. Well, the, the other thing is that, you know, and he, he kind of hinted at it in, in that clip, but it's something that um, it's the kind of argument of last resort for uh, right wingers, but also like many kind of like, hardcore liberals I would describe them as or like you know the Steven Pinker types um, which is that their their argument of last resort is that like no actually things are good you just don't appreciate them yeah, you know that yeah. like like it's just like actually no it's all great you just like you people are just uh, you know like you can't appreciate it like when you're like um, yeah oh 50% of Americans can't afford a $400 bill 
uh, that sounds bad. It's like, no, you idiot. Actually, they're just unappreciative children who are spoiled and, uh, you know, can't appreciate the fact that, I don't know, we, you know, they have Netflix and they have all the entertainment in the world or something. Like, that's their argument of last resort, that just that things are great, but people just don't appreciate them. Yeah, well, I mean, actually, at the very beginning of the debate, the, the moderator who, of course, is Chamber of Commerce guy. So, what, so the, the two questions that he, the two kinds of questions that he asked you know, as prompts were either like kind of vapid platitude questions, you know, like, oh, you know, what gives you hope about, you know, this generation and, you know, just sort of like putting together sort of vague feel good buzzwords, you know, generation, hope, you know, stuff like that, or else (laughs) questions of the form. Here's a right wing argument. What do you guys think? Like those were the two kinds of questions. There was never, here's a left wing argument. What do you guys think? But I, in one of his attempts to tee it up with a right-wing argument, he said, like, I don't remember who this is a quote from, but I've heard a couple of these people use it. Anyway, he said, somebody or other said, well, America is not uh, is not a failure. It's a disappointment, something like that. Uh, in other words, like, oh, oh, hey, we're not perfect. We don't always live to our ideals. You know, gosh darn it, we're trying our best. Uh, and, you know, Ben Shapiro, in responding to that, he was angry even at the claim that America could be a disappointment because he said, oh, what do you compare it to, perfection? It's like, no, motherfucker, I'm comparing it to Canada, right? You know, where, where, where people get health care as a human right. Like, compared to that, yes, right now it's a disappointment. And, and honestly, the idea that, like, oh, I love my society so much that I don't want it to improve in any way to make life better for the people who live in it, I think is probably, I hope, going to be intuitively unconvincing to uh, to most uh, most persuadable people in that audience. Uh, I, sh- yeah. I should say, by the way, I should say that, um, so, you know, obviously people don't have context for this because the current debate doesn't come out, you know, for, for another week, the uh, the video. But uh, the, uh, the the shirt that I'm wearing today, uh, it's a uh, post office shirt. And nice. uh, that, that was given to me. Uh, by uh, one of the people, the third party, you know, group, you know, uh, that organized the whole thing. Uh, they, they said that to me kind of as a joke uh, because of the moment in the debate that very clearly Charlie Kirk and I suspect like hopelessly drank the Kool-Aid conservative viewers will regard as the biggest own of me, which is when um, we were arguing about whether to make something public. I don't remember if it was healthcare or what it was. And Kirk says, uh, oh, so, so you want it to be run like the post office? And I said, what are you talking about? The post office is amazing. And, you know, he was just incredulous about that. You know, like everybody knows the post office sucks. <laughs> and uh, so I, I tried to make in the sort of most normally accessible possible language, the basic points that uh, one screw you if you talk to like certainly in terms if you want to talk about like racial equity and upward mobility like any black person over a certain age uh who you know who went to college 50 chance they they were able to do that because their dad had a good union you know unionized job at the post office and two you know it'll bring a letter from phoenix where that debate was being held to rural alaska for 50 cents that's an objectively amazing service uh, but totally. of course, from their perspective, it's like, oh, ha ha, post office, everybody knows that that's, you know, that's like, it if government it's bad. Yeah, I they mean, need look, to watch the Kevin Costner film, The Postman, to really appreciate. Oh, uh, Kevin office. Costner, he's a, he's a national treasure. Um, 
Yellowstone's a really good show. I don't know if you guys watch it, but you should. It's really good. I've seen it. Um, most watch so show on good. most watch show on cable. No one knows. Like no, none of the none of these coastal elites watch it. But it's the most watched uh, show on cable right now. Yeah, it's really good. Um, but no, I mean, I was just going to say like the, the post office is something that's totally taken for granted until there are disruptions to the post (laughs) office, right? When people don't get their mail for a few days and they're like, what the fuck is going on? Like they freak out about, yeah, it's an incredible service. It's so important. Um, and honestly, a lot of these, uh, private, uh, delivery companies rely on the post office to you know, get stuff shipped to rural parts of the country. I mean, Nando was touching on that earlier in the show, and it's absolutely correct. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, like, I mean, what the response, you know, is, I guess, is always like the Dave Rubin thing that, like, oh, in the world without the post office, competition would kick in and, you know, the, the, free, the free market would handle it, which is kind of what Ben Shapiro was at in what Eclipse watched earlier when uh, he responded to your point that, uh, the profit motive is a very bad thing in contexts like, uh, in contexts like energy, you know, where uh, you know leads it leads to stuff like what happened in Texas. And he he said, well, it's bad when the government is involved because it's paying for it. So the implication is that if we just had a pure free market energy system, uh, you know, if you know if you if you can't afford uh, to, uh, to to heat your own home. Or keep the electricity on to uh, to you know to to keep your kidney dialysis machine running. Then you know tough luck for you that fewer people would die if that happened. And of course that makes zero sense if you think about it for ten seconds. But what he's doing is the equivalent of like if you or I, you know, were like oh well you know any possible pro problems with any social system that's ever existed. You know, we're only problems because it wasn't pure enough communism. Then everything would magically solved. Like he's just doing the right wing equivalent of that. Yeah, um, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was it was fun. Um, I felt a little rusty. I hadn't like debated in a long time. But this show was like the single most important thing. Um, second was your show, <laughs> Ben, because I was watching your uh, debates. Uh, the way you guys like Thank analyze Thank you for debates. recognizing my superiority to to, to Ben. This is <laughs> well, the thing is with Ben's show, I'm just like a passive viewer slash listener. Um, with this show, I'm actually having to do research and like really, really absorb the, the right. content that we're doing. Um, and then, of course, I mean, Nando, the Washington Post called you hunky and, and you That's do true. all this important, you know, socialist Very commentary. True. Of course, I'm going to uh, learn yeah. a lot. Um, <laughs> but I got like a little taste and like I want to do it again. Like I really yeah. enjoyed it. Yeah, mm. you smell you blood in the water. You should absolutely do more of this. I, I think just that like combination of just being really focused on the stuff that they they don't want to talk about. I mean, just 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 like channel your your like Bernie Sanders sitting in the booth with Marine down, waving around the list of topics he's willing to talk about. You know, like uh, you know, that it's like, oh, what do you think? Could you know AOC ever be president? Like, I, I don't know. I'm gonna talk about healthcare. You know, like uh like channel that, right? Like whatever the question is, like the answer back to it's incredibly fucked up that not everybody has healthcare, you know, in this, uh, yeah. in this country. And, uh, and, and then just like that, just the demeanor when, when you were like that last clip we watched, like just the demeanor that like, you, you, you managed to pull off this thing where, where you're just like sort of, 
amused that like Ben is being as ridiculous as he is about this, but like it's it's cool. You'll explain to him how this stuff actually works. Like I think the more the more of like the more of that we can see uh, in, in debates like this, the better everything is. Yeah, I thought about Michael a lot. Um, you know, yes. I had a I had a meeting with uh, you know he he introduced me to his like coach uh, like two weeks before he passed, and I've been working with her ever since. And I told her the truth. I was like, it was a Thursday before the debate. And I just told her, like, I'm nervous because this guy's actually I know I'm right on the facts. It's just Mm -hmm. that it's it's debating is a skill and he's really good at debating. Right. So um, but we talked about how incredible Michael was in communicating ideas that are usually like you know, there's so much propaganda against mm-hmm. the ideas uh, and, and it's existed for such a long time. So he did a really good job in like being charming as fuck when he would ex- mm-hmm. express those ideas. Right. So um, that's part yeah, of the you reason gotta do, why you got to be charming when you express it. And then when the other guy's talking, just like roll your eyes comically, just like, like yeah, do the Trump thing. Really Mike, Mike would do that too. He would just be like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> So I thought about him a lot, but anyway, all right. Well, uh, let's let's bring Kale on. I don't know if we can have four people on the screen, yeah, but I can, figured we can all be here. How many can we have? What's the max number, Kale? Uh, I think it's like ten. <gasps> oh wow! We, we do it. I think we. Yeah, I think we maxed out. Thing. There was something like that many people on. Yeah, exactly. We uh, that was a party. We'll do. We'll probably do that again. I don't want to get people's hopes up, but yes. the uh, we'll release date for the new book, by the way, is New Year's Eve. Oh, so that's lovely. Have, that's, you know, you you know, while everyone else is out drinking and uh, kissing their crush on New Year's Eve, I want everyone in the audience to be not doing that and reading uh, Ben's Hitchens book. Uh, Drunkenly uh, reminiscing about Christopher Hitchens. Yeah, yeah. that's a that's a good homage to Hitch, by the way. Is to get is to get drunk as hell. Um, yeah, yeah. a bunch of cigarettes. Yeah, yeah. You you can you can buy your copy. You know. Uh, flip through it for a second. Say, "Oh, this looks interesting. I'll, I'll read this later." Uh, have a have a glass of Johnny Walker Black, and then like just go about your normal New Year's Eve. Yeah. Business. Does the book come with a bottle of Johnny Walker Black? Because that would be a good marketing campaign. Yeah, we'll, we'll have uh, to we'll have to talk to Zero Books. I think you should have, you should call Johnny Walker Black uh, Johnny Walker and be like, "Do you want to sponsor the Hitch book?" Uh, and it should be like the Hitch book brought to you by Johnny Walker Black. <laughs> Definitely. I don't know what happened to my camera. It got disconnected. So we're going to have to deal with my webcam and this massive, <laughs> this, this massive your, mic. <laughs> this is, is it like one of those like Logitech ones, like the little round balls uh, from like the internet 1.0? <laughs> <laughs> no, it looks like it, but no. Anna's been using the same mic since 1998. Just, it's I so, think, yeah. I think what everyone likes to see, we get the, we get the full bird finally. We get, uh, oh, the heron? Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, uh, I just want to give my husband a lot of credit for allowing me to decorate this place however I want, because there's a lot of pink. I'm just going to keep it real. <laughs> well, I mean, he's, he's, he's like Miami Cuban, right? That's probably not a problem. That's true. Yeah, he's into it. A lot of, a lot of pastel color. Uh, well, we have a couple more minutes before we hit the end of the hour. And I'm on screen because uh, we'll take some super chat questions, super chats uh, and questions from YouTube members. So if you have questions, send them in now and we'll try to get to as many or as, you know, the, at least the ones that we can actually answer. Sometimes you ask us questions that we really can't answer and, and I feel bad. But um, 
hopefully we'll have actual questions that we can answer. Um, we will, I mean, if it's something like super existential, we can do that, but uh, it's still probably not going to be very satisfying. You would spend, it would be better to spend all of our time spe uh, talking about something other than that. But, um, uh, okay, Michael Tanzi, I'm not familiar with uh, this. I don't know if anyone else is. Um, after reading a bit of One World Ready or Not by William Greider, I'm curious about moving to a single global currency, future discussions on it. Uh, Bitcoin, baby. Let's, let's just do it. Let's just uh, let's do it. Um, I've no real thoughts about it. I think I think my one word thought is Greece. That you got to be able to bail yourself out if something happens. Yeah. So, uh, I, I, well, I, I mean, the, yeah, yeah. Economic, like economic, uh, what the, the European Union problem, right? Like economic integration mm -hmm. without political integration is uh, anti-democratic and yeah. Um, I mean, if, if you have a one-world democratic state, maybe sure, you know, that's fine. Yeah, have, well, we can you have. Know, you know, it's like we could do like in you know in every science fiction movie there they use credits. Like, right? They call it credits. It's like, that's right, that's right. you know, it's like it's 10,000 credits is, you know, for this spaceship or whatever. Uh, yeah. But you can't have that's, one one currency without one. I know. But you, you can't have one currency without one government, you know? I mean, this is something, actually, it's funny. Uh, we got a question about this. We were doing some questions after the show on... Uh, on Jacobin show earlier this week and it was Jen and I, and um, I don't, Michael, I don't know if it was you who asked us this question. It might've been um, now that I'm remembering, but there was a question about, uh, about money and abolishing money and currency. And I think a lot of this stuff just kind of misplaces where our focus should be that the problem with like social problems in the world are not created by money or by a particular currency. It's the actual social relationships that uh you know that money is just kind of carried along throughout that money ends up becoming our expression of what the actual uh social relations are the actual the fact that you know i have to show up to a job every single day uh to work for a boss and i do that only because i have to you know make ends meet on a market that i have to pay my rent you know to a landlord i have to buy groceries i have to buy clothing um, and so I need that, I need money, I need income in order to obtain all those other resources. And, uh, and, you know, capitalists need money in order to reinvest, uh, to start the, you know, to, to make a profit that they are, you know, but it's not that, you know, money is just, it's something that's instrumentally useful for that process to happen. But, you know, if it wasn't one currency, it'd be a different currency. If it was, you know, I mean, we have, paper money. And, you know, at one point we had gold, uh, some, you know, societies, our history have used shells, you know, that it's just, it's something that's instrumental to the actual social dynamics that actually define and undergird the system. And so like what, what um, Ben and Ando are talking about when it comes to something like Greece, um, you know, the, the problem isn't that, uh, you know, there's different currencies or that Greece now has to, you know, they have to have the Euro. It's the fact that, uh, the European Union has dramatically changed the actual economic uh, uh, solutions or the economic um, options that Greece can pursue in the face of a capitalist crisis. Um, not a crisis of capitalism, but a crisis within capitalism. The fact that, uh, you know, they now, there's a ton of debt, the numbers in the books are wrong. And um, 
you know, it, at one point they could have, um, you know, uh, they could have done uh, de deflationary measures. They could have, um, you know, exchanged currencies, but they can't do that in the EU. And so that's a specific, like that has nothing to do with their specific currencies though. So like, if you want, you know, did you guys see that clip of, uh, did you guys see the clip on Squawk on the street or whatever the, of that guy, Joe, that fucking awful guy? Um, I forgot his name, Joe Kennan or something, or Kernan or something. Um, when the, they had some Irish guy on, like who's like some investment fund manager, and they're like, we welcome now uh, Seamus McMahon or whatever from Ireland. Uh, he runs the Irish, whatever the fuck. Um, and he's like, yeah, we're investing a hundred million euros and 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 whatever. And 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 like the interviewer is like talking, asking about it, and then all of a sudden Joe interrupts him and he goes like, euros? Why the hell are you be using euros? And he's like, why wouldn't we be using euros? And he's like, uh, I thought you guys used pounds. And he's like, nope, we use euros. And he's like, uh, he's like, I was just in Scotland. They use pounds over there. He's like, yep, they do that in Scotland. Uh, we're in Ireland. Uh, and he's like, aren't you guys like, he's like, no, I, you know, that's the UK. We're not, we're not a part of it. It's like, but you're right there. This was like on CNBC. You guys haven't seen this clip? Oh, no, no we gotta, that sounds amazing. Let me, let me that. find it. Send it, send it. Yeah, I won't play it. I'll send it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I guess I would also say like on a little bit on the global currency thing, but especially the like abolishing money thing, you know, that, that you just, uh, that you just mentioned. I, I mean, I think like, look, I mean, as socialists, we want, you know, we want people to be as little dependent on the market, you know, to meet their needs as, as, as we can possibly make them consistently with having a functioning, you know, economy and society and, and all that stuff. Uh, so, uh, important to actually figure out how, how to do it. Sure, maybe, right? But, like, I, I also think it's, like, a little bit, like, people get way too focused on that because, honestly, I think it's almost an aesthetic thing that, like, some people's self-image requires them to express their politics in the most like performatively radical possible way, right? You know, the number number of things you can say that you want to abolish, you know, that everybody's used to, that you know, you, sh you should just make that list as long as at all possible. And I kind of think that's the opposite of how you should actually try. I mean, sort of right. going back to what we we're talking about with debates, how you should actually try to persuade people of radical politics. Uh, you know, just just shout out this this article I just read that's really good. By Matthew Thomas. He has a substat called Vulgar Marxism. And he has this article called uh, How to Win Comrades and Influence People. And it's basically, you know, about how, like, uh, you know, you can have, you know, normie, you know, normie policy, normie presentation. That's like the Obama quadrant. You could have uh, normie policy, radical presentation. You know, that's like the sort of annoying Radlib quadrant, you know, and radical policy radical presentation you know we know what that looks like and that you know yeah. and but then we, like, the we were recently like, watching a video from maoist maoist rebel news um <laughs> it was uh, good it was good i liked it yeah it was good <laughs> but it was a uh, presentation was was uh, was a little lacking but yeah nor, nor, you know radical politics normie presentation is the quadrant you want to be in that's the cool zone that's that that's where like that's how india you know india walton you know uh becomes you know mayor of buffalo that's how Bernie Sanders came like shockingly close to being president of the United States. And I'm not saying that your horizons have to be limited to that, but the more you can present it in that way, the better off you are. Yeah. I do think though, and last I'll say on this, I do think there's something unique about like the let's abolish money, you know, the whole currency stuff that it's something different than, cause like the left will, you know, like you're saying, you know, not to repeat you, but the left will say abolish X, Y, Z very often. Mm -hmm. And it's performative and stupid. It's not really useful. 
Um, when it comes to uh, currency, I think like it's just something that keeps coming up among ordinary people that <laughs> it just it is like the it's people recognizing like, why am I stuck like beholden to this stuff? Like, what is the what is the secret? I don't get it. Like, there's clearly something going on with this that like it's more than what it actually is in my hand. And I don't really fully understand um, and that's again because it's actually it doesn't do any of the actual work. It's it's the actual capital as a social relation. It's the fact that capitalists make a profit that they start with a hundred dollars, you know, at one work day, and by the end of it or the next day or whatever, they end up with hundred twenty dollars. And you know, they have more money, but the money didn't change. You know, the money didn't like itself multiply or something. It's the social relation of, uh, of like, making a profit. Looks like you haven't invested in Bitcoin. Uh, you know it just goes up and down up and down (laughs) yeah uh well one one of these days i'll i'll correct my ways um another question uh from eclectic mobilization who says it's great workers are using the power to negotiate or strike with 77 percent support of unions in some polls biden saying he's pro-union and dem majorities in congress is it time for a general strike uh, uh, I mean, it's like, it's like when it, there's, th- that's a kind of a, uh, I don't know if putting the cart before the horse is the expression I'm looking for, or, uh, like, I mean, it would be nice. It would be nice, but like, it's like, it would, I also want a million dollars in my bank account tomorrow. Like, it's just, there's just not, the conditions don't seem to be, um, uh, such that a general strike is even in the cards in terms of any sort of the coordination necessary to pull something like that off. Um, you know, it's just one of those things. Yeah. I, I mean, like we, we finally got started to get these stirrings of like more strikes happening and stuff like that, which is fantastic. Right. It's like the best possible thing that could happen. Uh, and obviously like a general strike would be unbelievably amazing and like how that would actually change the balance of power. But like, you gotta like, that's that, that really is like saying like, um, Hey, you know, what, what, what kind of car are you driving? That's, you know, 2012 for escapes. Like, okay, that's nice. W- would you prefer to be a galactic spaceship? Yeah, I guess. And then you have one like they, you know, like right now uh, it's finally been going up just a little bit like the last year or two, but like the rate of private sector unionization is like 6.7, you know, you like, like you just, we just don't have the infrastructure to to do that right now. And, and, and right now, I, I feel like that's a way of just kind of like, again, it's another way of just sort of performatively saying like, you know, how, how, how radical you are to say like, let's do this thing that we clearly can't do yet. I mean, I, I think what, you know, the real thing is let's build up the labor movement to the point that there could be a general strike someday. There's never yeah. been a general strike in America. No, not at the national right. level. There's been cities, yeah. but and those There's are never been a general strike. Well. Yeah, it's not, you know, if it had, if it didn't happen in like you know, uh, 1946, it's not going to happen now. Well, I mean, I would just, I would, I would argue a little differently and just say that, like, think, I mean, think about what the costs are when you go out on strike. That, like, you have to your premise is that like capitalism is real and like it does in fact massively dictate our lives. Like, like it matters that like for the most of us, like we're stuck, you know, either in a labor market or like, you know, under the thumb of a boss and 
if we're not under the thumb of a boss, then you know we very quickly need to find a, a new way to get under a different thumb of a different boss because that's the only way that you have income. And so if you say, I'm not taking this anymore, I'm, you know, I'm fighting back, I'm withholding my labor today, uh, the boss can just say, okay, fine, I'll find someone else to do it. So you have to first coordinate among your coworkers. You and even if you can get all of your coworkers on on one shop floor to say, like, we're not showing up tomorrow. Uh, we're withholding our labor and you're going to have to deal with it. You have to deal with our demands. The size of companies, a, a boss might say, fine, I don't care. All of you can go out. I'll get some new guys to come in. Like, so that's the, it's that. And then in addition to the fact that like, even if workers do go out on strike, the boss, he's the one who holds all the wealth. So like he can, in fact, like stay out and fight for a prolonged period of time. And that like workers, you know, if it's a one day thing, the boss is going to be fine. Most bosses, mm-hmm. not every boss, but most bosses will be able to make it without a day's worth of profit. Uh, a worker, you know, a day, maybe, you know, maybe uh, a couple days starting to get pretty tight for a lot of people who, like Anna said, and we've said many times before, like the there's a ridiculous amount of people, like almost half the country can't survive a $400 emergency. I mean, that was before the pandemic. It's, I don't know the exact statistic now, but it just for the perspective of like how little income most working people actually have. So to say like, I'm going to give up on my income for a day or two could be tragic Uh, for a week. I mean, most workers like are not going to be able to make it after a couple of weeks. And so that's why you need unions with strike funds. And, you know, so you have to both, you have to convince your, your fellow workers to go out and strike. You have to convince the union that it's worth uh, putting its resources into this effort because you could also lose that and they've just spent the entire strike fund and now the union's fucked. So there's so many variables that go into this that like it, it makes complete sense why this stuff doesn't just happen automatically, even though it's concurrently obviously true that workers are on the, the worst end of the, the deal here with their bosses because, you know, they lack complete, autom- they lack autonomy in the workplace. The boss tells them what to do, how, where to work, how long to work, how hard to work. And most workers just have to, take it like that the alternative of fighting back is not truly an alternative under most conditions. Like you have to, you have to successfully check off all these other things for it to be viable. And it's just really, really difficult. And so um, that's why it's never been at a national level. It's only very rarely been at like a, at the level of like a city or something. And that's because one strike ended up bleeding into other sectors. And so yeah. Yeah. That's what you have to think about. It's the, yeah. Yeah. I, I would, I'll also say like everything you just described about how capitalist workplaces work. Like I, I, I also loved the way that in Anna's debate with Ben Shapiro, uh, you know, at the, at the very end of the first part of the main part, not the first part, the main part. And then again, in that like sort of after segment that we watched some of, you know, she started talking about uh, worker cooperatives, which, First, like maybe very proud because uh, the Washington Post has never called me hunky. I don't have that going for me. Uh, <laughs> but you could uh, could look at a segment that I did uh, with um, uh, with that on No Filter like years ago, talking about worker cooperatives. I was like, oh, that's nice. Uh, and then, uh, but then um, also, I, I think it's just such a nice way to with an audience where, like, I mean, again, forget the Chamber of Commerce, but like the real audience that like largely is going to be super unfamiliar 
with any kind of socialist ideas, and, and it's going to be a very hard sell at anything that sounds radical and hard to imagine. I think it's just a nice way of planting that little seed that like, oh, this is not actually the only possible way to organize society that like some people are bosses and some people are workers. Like we, we could actually like open that up a little bit and think about other ways of doing things. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, so the very last super chat asks what's going to happen next. And the answer is we're going to end the show because I'm going to have lunch. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm uh, going to go get some uh, antihistamines, uh, hopefully yeah. recover from my allergies. <laughs> yeah. Get the cat yeah. out of there. Uh, (laughs) all right guys yeah all right well thank you so much to ben um really fun conversation loved having you on everyone go check out give them an argument uh where he breaks down many different debates uh, along with a guest and uh kale thank you as always everyone uh who's watching thanks for supporting the show uh please subscribe or become a patron if you haven't already And uh, subscribe to Jacobin Magazine if you haven't. uh, And you can uh, do that right now as soon as we wrap up the show. So thank you for watching. Have a great weekend. We'll see you soon. And pre-order Ben's new book. Pre-order it. It's available for For, pre-order. Yeah. So uh, the Amazon link won't be up for a week. And I understand that. I want to say that's where most people get it. But you can pre-order it today from Red Emma's, which is actually a worker cooperative bookstore in Baltimore. So that's uh, redemmas.org. You can get it there. Alrighty. All right. Thanks, Later, everyone. Guys. Thanks, everyone. Bye bye.